Hi everyone, and welcome to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir, the only pod that takes you behind the scenes and gives you the inside word on the world of tech and growth from the insiders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of Luxury Escapes, journalist and angel investor. And I'm joined by my great mate, Adir Schiffman, executive chairman of Catapult Sports and serial investor. In today's episode, we're talking Temple and Webster, Seek.com, and our big story on the Victorian government's secret $2 billion growth fund. Let's get into it. I'm not sure about you, idea, but I'm super excited to be launching our, our new pod. We were, I know we're a bit unsure about launching, but I, can't, I don't think a, a couple of days, a day went past without somebody speaking to one of us and saying, when's the pod coming back? I totally agree. I mean, hopefully as many people listen now as nagged me to do a podcast together with you. <laughs> we get at least 10. But, uh, and I think the one thing that, that our listeners can expect from the pod is our pod is brutal honesty. I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of outlets that will give the, the sort of company line, the executive line. But I think what, what we'll try and bring to this pod is, is just a different take on, on startups, on growth, on VC, and on just general business issues. Totally. And no one will get closer to defamation than we will. Uh, have you been? So I've been. So I've been uh, threatened a couple of times with death. Have you? Have you I'm, come close to I'm that? I'm usually on the view with law. It's better to give than to receive. So. <laughs> Absolutely is. I, I've never actually been sued, but I've been threatened. I think right. about probably ten times. Uh, I go. I wrote a book uh, a number of years ago, and there was probably about a thousand defamatory imputations in that book. And the only person who threatened to, to sue was a guy who was mentioned just in passing. It was a completely irrelevant, nothing line. And we said to him, and the way we settled it was the publisher went, okay, well, the next print run, we'll, 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 we'll fix it and take you out. There was never going to be another print run. Like a, we, half the copies went unsold. So That's this guy fantastic. accepted that and it was, a, it was a good result for all. But I had a, a guy, you know, when I wrote my financial review column. So people, I, I try to write very fairly using only desk research and, um, and try not to be too nasty to people. And it, every three or four pieces, somebody will send me an email very upset because I didn't stick to their PR line that they had put out and tell me that they're going to speak to their lawyers. And I think say to them, I actually don't say this, but what I want to say is the first thing you should ask is how much your lawyer is going to charge you per hour to speak to them. And then I don't think you're going to speak to them anymore. I mean, it's just so ridiculous, right? It's so ridiculous. How long are you spending? Obviously, you got one of the, the probably the best one of the best articles in the country. You write a, probably a fortnightly, I think, article mm. these days in the Financial Review in mm. the tech section on Tuesday. And we'll talk about your article this week shortly. But how long do you spend preparing, researching those those pieces? It really varies. Like sometimes if I'm in a rush, I'll write something more skewed towards the opinion side of things. <laughs> and so you and I are not short of opinions, so we can churn those hence, out. Hence today's pod. But um, pod. generally, uh, I probably would spend five to ten hours on researching, oh, doing wow. desk research on these articles. But, you know, as you would feel the same way, like it's... We we are the kind of nerds that get, are very intrigued by what's hidden inside company information, annual reports, etc. And so it's kind of a leisure activity for me, to be honest. <laughs> it's actually amazing how much, and we'll talk about this obviously on, on the show today and every every week is is how much info you get from financial reports if you know what to look for. for sure. And we're not going to be talking about the accounting sort of nuances generally, but if you look at companies like ABC Learning Centres, all, all these big collapses of the last twenty years, it was it was. Plain as day. And the smart hedge funds, the smart investors saw it well before most people. So hopefully we can give some insight into, into that sort of stuff. And, and today we'll be talking about some of the great Australian businesses and some that we'll look at more closely, including Seek.com, Temple and Webster, Setire. We'll talk about our big story on, on Australia's biggest venture capital fund that nobody has ever heard of, which you broke this week. 
And we'll also talk about some recent capital raises at Canberra and safety culture, and hopefully we can get to, to the big news around Qantas, which can't keep out of the news. Uh, but let's start with, with Temple and Webster, which I'm is... I'm going to tell you this before, because as you lead into Temple and Webster, because you're going to talk about some numbers, presumably. We you are. know, the reason that um, we are so cynical and think about reporting and we think you can find so much in reports is because we are on both sides of the table of these things, right? Like, you know, we're both running businesses or involved in businesses. You know, when you're inside a public company, a lot of time is spent talking about what reports should look like and how to present them. And then we have this deep um, contrarianism and cynicism in our personalities. And so we've got these split personalities on both sides. I think that's what kind of makes it interesting to look through other companies' annual reports is you look at, I wonder what, why they said. Nothing is said incidentally in an annual report. Maybe that's the best way to describe it. And also comparing annual reports to the presentations that they present to, to analysts and investors. And, and There's no adjusted EBITDA in an annual report number, <laughs> right? Like, Underlying base yeah. adjusted oh, EBITDA. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about Tem- Temple. So we talked about Temple a few months ago on, on our mm. other pod uh, and actually made front page of the AFR, which is a new, for, this is a business that's sub a billion dollars mm-hmm. that made the front page of the AFR. We saw, and it was a really mixed bag of results. So sales were down 7% to $396 million. Uh, the bottom line, they made $8.3 million net profit, which was slightly down. EBITDA uh, was down 9% to $14.9 million, coming off those sort of still COVID-induced peaks from last year. Interestingly, the company has an $800 million market capitalization mm-hmm. still. So this is an EBITDA multiple of 53 times. So this is a incredibly lofty multiple. Mm-hmm. You generally see sort of EBITDA multiples between sort of 10 and 20. I is would it? say a software multiple, but there's no EBITDA with a software company generally. So yeah, there's so infinite multiples. E. But so, it's yeah. software-ish kind of multiples. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and one of the big uh, big pieces, in the, the, the highlight announcement, this is always a big red card, a big red flag for me, is uh, Temple Webster mentioned they're using artificial intelligence to avert what boss Mark Coulter, who's a great guy, called the retail recession by writing AI-enhanced descriptions of their home furnishing it sells online and convincing more customers to convert their browsing to purchases. Mr. Coulter said AI was using descriptions across more than 200,000 items and led to an increase to add to carts and revenue per visit. Doesn't that mean we asked ChatGPT to write our descriptions? Isn't I think that what it exactly, means? And this is exactly what it meant. And I'm always, if I see AI in, a, in an earnings report, yeah. it makes me really, really nervous because it means someone needs a narrative because For the sure. core narrative isn't that good? So I think we've talked about Temple before. What are your views on the on the business and this result specifically? So there are some an- some retail analysts. I'm not going to name names, but there are some retail analysts that I argue with on a fairly regular basis. Like they are, that's a pretty well known analyst, and they quite like Temple and Webster. And I've heard you know really only good things about the CEO. There, you obviously know him. My view, I've got like these few views on it. One is like. Uh, they are, they work on thin margins, so I don't. I'm not a believer in like. I mean, EBITDA is kind of not relevant. I don't think even NPAT, you know, net profit after tax. Maybe you can persuade me. There's a lot of accounting that goes into that. What I care about is like, show me your cash, or at least let me adjust your tech stuff out of your results. And what you find is that you know, like by my calculations, they're running at about let's say 15 to 20 mil of real free cash generation as a business on, you know, that, that is a few percent of a margin. Yep. And that could flip in exactly the other direction in the blink of an eye if things went badly. And so my concern with all of these businesses, mega top line growth, I can't remember how many hundreds of millions of dollars their revenue is, but, um, you know, these mega top line businesses eking out tiny free cash generation, admittedly with them with a massive balance, but their bank balance is huge, mm. doing a share buyback at the moment, like I, these are not the businesses for me. 
If I had to pick a retail, I've said this many times, you know, this analyst asked me, what would you value the stock at? I I'm not sure what amount of money I'd pay for the 15 to 20 million dollars of free cash they generate, but it wouldn't be more than 10 times. And then yep. add then add their 100 mil of cash to that, and you get to a valuation that's maybe 60 percent of the current valuation. Yeah, so I think that sounds fair. I think if you look at the biggest concern is that the EBITDA is is dropping. So they, they had that one of the great things about Temple. Why do you believe that? Like EBITDA, what? I'm not a believer in even that number. Oh, but I think, and you got an 8.3 million net. So it's not like you, and also that, to Temple's credit, they don't really capitalize any software. Yep. So one of the great tricks and something to look for in any business for people listening is uh, capitalize software expense. 100%. So you are, accounting rules allow you to capitalize some of the, so basically to explain, if, if we hire, if I hire a hundred developers and they're working on a website, Part of that, and that's 100 developers cost me $10 million. A part of that $10 million, the accounting standards say, you don't have to put it through your profit and loss. I mean, you can actually put it on the balance sheet as, a, as an asset. A bit like you're building a factory and the factory sits on the balance sheet. So there is some logic to it. we can start it. by saying the CFO's beginning position and the CEO is, let's capitalise all of it. <laughs> and then you kind of work backwards from there, right? Like, what can we get away with capital? And the Temple's credit, they capitalise almost nothing. So yep. they've, they've done, generally done the right so thing there. So it's not their EBITDA, I specifically don't believe. It's just more kind of EBITDA in general, in general, given how far it's deviated from, you know, it was, I mean, you know, like it was originally, it was meant to be a cash proxy, right? Like we can't see cash because there's movements in inventory and yep. receivables. So let's use EBITDA as a cash proxy. I mean, people caught on to that pretty quickly, right? Yeah. And it's completely manipulated, not specifically with them, yeah. but as a number, it's yeah, not- To me, I'm looking at a combination of net profit and EBITDA, yeah. and as you say, cash. And, and I think if you, if you look at all three, Temple isn't, a terrible story, but I think the concern is is when you're slowing, so the growth is slowing, that's a sort of eight to ten times, or even a five to eight times multiple. So you're looking at potentially a hundred million dollar valuation, which is what they were not long ago in Venice, and it's still been a good story because this is a business that was worth almost zero. But they got a hundred million of cash or something on the balance sheet. Hundred million, hundred million dollars was right. That's, that's a fair bit of cash on the balance sheet, presumably from a, a raise. Uh, yeah, they raised during COVID. Yeah, which is yeah. smart. So uh, it's clearly a well-run company by by a couple of really smart guys. Agree. Uh, a good and a brand that's known. Very well known. Brand. It's hard for me to know what they exactly what they're trying to be as a business, like. You know, like, are they a marketplace? Marketplaces were very popular for a while. Personally, I prefer businesses that sell their own stuff. As you know, they're my favorite businesses. So it's hard for I me to work 30% out. of the stock they said is, is private label. So in a sense, that's yeah. less marketplace. It's like that part of the business is good. We part had of a- their reduction in costs was pulling out of that home business mm. that they were getting involved in. Yeah. So that was obviously been disappointing. I think overall, it's a business that's executed well, but seems highly overvalued. Yeah. And this obviously is an investment advice, uh, so don't go and So if someone them, said to uh, me, so if someone said to me, you can have this business, and I got this business for free, which I would obviously take it, <laughs> um, the main thing I would be worried about is the margins of this business, like these really sliver-thin cash margins and how much that exposes me to wiping out my, you know, like wiping out my business if something goes wrong. And at this point of this business with, you know, I can't remember their revenue line, 400 mil or whatever it is. Uh, I think it'll be higher. It's under 396. Yeah, and so um, my focus on that would be less about top-line growth and more about, like, how can I get 10% of that to fall into cash? That would be my focus with this business. I think, I I guess the counterpoint to that is there's some great businesses that have wafer-thin margins. If you look at booking.com, so flight obviously come from the travel space. Yeah, but with 10 times the revenue. Oh, 100%. Business. But so you can have a good business with, with low margin. You just yeah. have to have a lot of revenue around it. And yes. It's generally got to be a global business. Can Temple Webers go global? Probably not, given the nature of the stock and the nature of the beast. And there's obviously a, in, in Wayfair, a US essentially comparator business. I know, but so just to argue with you about this. So booking.com, like they're effectively, 
a commission business. That's yeah. their business. Yeah. And so they collect X commission. I'm going to use round numbers. Let's say 20%. Then they go and give a chunk back yeah. um, in various forms, like Hotels.com, they give it back as free nights, effectively. Yeah. And so they're keeping this portion. Their real revenue is this tiny fraction of their total transaction. Well, you know yep. this world. And so that is the way that industry operates on, on thin margins. But yep. that is not the way the bulky goods retail industry mm, that's operates. True. That's true. And so that's my biggest so I think issue your point is less about margins, more about the margin and the product being combined. And, right. and you're right, obviously, and you've been involved in, in product businesses before and are. Uh, and private label clearly is, a, is, is if you own your inventory and control your inventory it's a very different business to having to yes. rely on third parties and we'll talk about satire shortly which yep. is a classic case let's move on to seek uh, seek.com one of the great australian online businesses one of the first the big three marketplaces seek car sales really and it's not realestate.com really interesting to compare the three over the journey so you had real estate that sort of seek i think real estate was first seek was then then got really big quite quickly and then car sales was much slower so car sales speaking to aj bardia who was running car sales, uh, Australian business. Now he runs a big business in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, lovely guy. And, and when he joined car, car sales, it was probably only 12 years ago. It was only a $200 million business. It's mm-hmm. now a $9 billion business. So what a great story that's been. But, mm-hmm. but talking about Seek, so Seek had a, a, another mixed result. Revenue up 10%, EBITDA up 7%, NPAT, as you say, which is probably the most important, especially a business at this level. NPAT by far the more important number. That was down 16% mm-hmm. to $203 million. Uh, and just an interesting comparison. So we, we think of Seek as being this, this sort of incredibly resilient business over so long. 10 years ago, Seek's share price was $16 a share. Now it's $23 a share. So that's minimal growth in 16 years. When you look at the indices and how, how well they've gone, especially the US indices. Uh, so Seek's been a... But a nice dividend payer over that period. A reasonable dividend payer, but not... not it's not a... You can add, uh, add that to the return. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of TSR. But if you look at... Uh, of the current valuation, that there's about a billion dollars of Go One, which is a great yeah. investment. I think Andrew would have made uh, about a decade ago or just under. So take off the Go One, they sort of they've barely grown mm. in in a decade, uh, which is, uh, my view is, you take out Andrew and Paul from that business and, and Matt as well. You, you've got a banker running a McKinsey, a former McKinsey, their banker who sort of left CBA under a cloud. Uh, so you've got a banker running this business, and to me, it's just like a bank. It's a com- it's a commoditized business that isn't really growing or shrinking. Uh, what are your views on, on that? Am so I, I being too harsh? I would probably be more positive on Ian Narev than you are. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, so I think, look, by, by the way, like I think Ian Narev is like, they're the um, kind of highs you dream of. I call them like bruised fruit. <laughs> like they're always the sweetest. Like you get these things that nobody else wants to touch. And, you know, often you can really knock it out of the park getting someone yep. that I think is kind of better than you deserve at this point in time. So, look, personally, I think they did well with him. This, But I agree with you about, like, you know, Andrew and Paul in particular. Like, you know, this is still a founder involved in the business. I think um, the problem that Seek has – well, it's not a problem. Their margins are unbelievable on their Australian business. I mean, yep. it's a cash machine. I, I wish that I could have any business <laughs> that is a cash machine that they have. But their Australian business is mature. Yeah. It is completely at the mercy, I think, largely of the market for employment in Australia. And yes, they tried to add some, you know, increase the basket size, I'll call it, or yep. average spend by some fancy, but it's all basically, you know, they are growing pretty consistently with the market in Australia. And like unemployment has been historically low. Mm. There's been lots of job ads. Yeah. Now there's increasing unemployment. I think it's gone from 35 to 3.7% in the yeah. last couple of days. So that's not good for a business that relies on employment ads. And you saw it with domain, you know, yeah. domain's results for ads in Melbourne and Sydney for property. So that's their Aussie business. And then they've made this decision not to expand 
into a multi-vertical marketplace classifieds model in Australia. So they, they probably early on, you mm. know, we know they could have bought REA slash car sales or bought into them. They yeah. chose not to go down that route. And so they've got this Australian business. And then they've got this strategy, which is rolling out their model and their smarts internationally. And I think that sounds like a sensible strategy. And they've had some fits and starts and had some Chinese problems early. Mm. So I think this is going to be one of those businesses where um, if they nail that international strategy, then all of a sudden the share price is going to fly. Remember, Microsoft was stagnant for 10 years as well, their share price. And then all of a sudden they got into you know, cloud. They followed, I would say they followed Amazon into cloud and the share price started rocketing. They had 10 lost years as well. And so I'm not saying this is lost years by seek, but what I'm saying is that this business is a bargain if it get, ends up priced on the Aussie business with the international business almost as a free option, which it was at one point, and now it's not priced like that anymore. And so I think that that's the challenge is what's going to happen to their Australian driver. So the only difference is Microsoft's trading on a PE multiple of sort of 30, Seek's on 40, Microsoft's growing, Seek's shrinking. You're right on the international piece. Um, you've got the LinkedIn challenge. I, we spend... I reckon 10 times as much on LinkedIn as Seek, like multiples yeah. on LinkedIn. Obviously, we've got a certain type of business, I mean, a certain type of person. It's yeah. not. And one interesting thing about Seek, I only discovered this a few years ago, is I always thought Seek had sort of exclusivity over all these job ads, but a lot of these job ads are just sort of commoditized ads that appear on all sorts of job mm-hmm. boards. So your sort of strength is on. And they're being scra- they're scraping sites. Yeah. You know, I mean, I agree oh, with you. I always thought it's on the. So really, it's the demand side where Seek, it's the supply side, there's really no strength there. It's because that sort of commoditized mm. job ads. It was on the demand side. And that's where the, I think the LinkedIn way of recruiting is is a much better way of recruiting than, than Seek. So I think if you to go back to first principles, uh, take out you've taken out these amazing founders, you put on it, put in the banker, and you can we can disagree on agree yeah. on, on on the merits of that. You've got a business that's highly mature. You got a, it's that's sort of playing around internationally that hasn't really done incredibly well, like car sales has internationally, and then got real head has done nothing internationally. Um, to me, it just feels overvalued. So as it, well. I agree. It's not the price is not cheap. But I'll tell you this thing about you know your LinkedIn comment because I agree. Like I mean, obviously love LinkedIn, and so but I'll tell you this comment. So you know Kim Williams who ran New- Foxtel. he ran Foxtel and he ran News right, and um, I, I think he's very smart. And I I tell you this great story. It's like the ultimate name dropping story. So. <laughs> So because of the Catapult stuff, I was at a dinner that they hosted, Port Adelaide hosted a few years ago at a match. They invited me to come and whatever, and uh, I was next to Sally, I forgot her name, the amazing cyclist, and and like David Koch was running the, yeah. the dinner, and I was next to Kim Williams on the other side, and we were talking. And I think I, it must have been five or six years ago, because I said to him, you must be happy not running Foxtel anymore now with the rise of Net, Netflix. And his answer, I thought, was very, very wise. He said to me, that's true, but people always underestimate the power of incumbency. And I thought, mm. that is spoken by somebody that really understands the space. And I think Seek's big advantage is the incumbency advantage in Australia. And I yep. think it will be difficult to erode that over any, sh- you know, even medium period of time. And that boy, Scott Galloway, who's one of my favourite podcasters, tells this great story about how I think he invested in Yellow Page. The Yellow Page is equivalent in the States. Mm-hmm. I think it was five years ago. And I think he bought on like a two times earnings multiple mm-hmm. or something like that. And obviously, nobody really uses Yellow Page anymore. It's a terrible business. Everybody's on Google. Yeah. But well, I say everybody, there's a small cohort of people who do use Yellow Page and people still advertise in it. So I think it was it was earning like, I paid it. They paid court a billion dollars. It was earning five hundred million, and as his view was, as long as this business doesn't go under in two years, I'm going to make make money. And it lasted five years, and they made 
couple, like two or three X return, and what was a pretty safe bet. So mm-hmm. that sort of caught. That's um, a Warren Buffett Mills. You know, when he originally started yeah. with Mills, right? And like, well, Berkshire Hathaway was a, <coughs> that's was right. A, that's um, throwing off throwing off cash of these like you know B grade, C grade businesses. Yeah, I think he did regret in the end Berkshire, but the, I think there definitely is that's caught distressed. And this is not what, yes. clearly not what Seek is, but there yeah. definitely is value. But I think Seek isn't there yet. Seek's still valued on that premium value, and so is Car Sales and, and REA. They but did I think pick Car Sales deserves it. I mean, they got Go One right. And so any business that's still doing that kind of thing is still it still has excitement in it. But, but what multiple of it would have ventured capital? Like, and I know Andrew's got a VC fund now, and he's clearly a super smart yeah. investor. Yeah. But I want to back Andrew running a business that can 100x, not Andrew as a venture capitalist, because there's yeah. plenty of venture capitalists. And I don't want to invest in a public VC firm. So yeah. to me, you that, can invest in it, give him money. You can LP into his brother's fund if you want to you invest can do that in that as well. Yeah. But, so I'd rather. I don't like that. Yeah. Um, and as good an investor as Andrew has been, he's yeah. done, and, he, and they were also super early in IDP, which is which. Yes, unfortunately, they came out of it. That was almost one of the greatest investments ever made in Australia. Yes, uh, so it was definitely the greatest investment of the CEO of IDP taking that CEO gig. Yeah. through the boom, I think Phil they made. Buckler, I think his name I, was. Like, yeah. I think it was a fifty or a one hundred million dollar profit that the guy made on running that. Yeah, and justifiably, I think uh, Tanil runs it now, who's, yeah. who's, a, who's a great CEO, yeah. but it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar, one of the greatest Australian success stories no one's heard of. We can only talk about it that in a few weeks' time, but let's we can move applaud, on. We can applaud her career move. Absolutely. Another friend of mine running a door. So, so it's, <laughs> Is uh, that right? They, yeah. yeah. Um, let's move on. Let's go to, let's talk about safety culture. So mm-hmm. one of the, look at the sort of Blackbird investments. So Blackbird is probably Australia's biggest VC firm, mm-hmm. firm alongside SquarePeg. And they've been obviously invested in Canva, which is the, one of the great investments we'll ever see. The ninety something plus return of all VC in Australia yeah, business. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, it's ninety percent probably an underestimate. Probably in my underestimate. View. Obviously, Canva raises all boats, but but Blackbird's also famously invested in Culture App, mm-hmm. which has been a great story, and Safety Culture. So the big three of Blackbird. Mm-hmm. So Safety Culture, essentially a, a health and safety checklist. Mm-hmm. So pretty simple business, mm-hmm. but executed reasonably well by Lucanier, um, or very well in some cases. Let's just talk about the numbers. They raised a really small $34 million yeah. raise uh, from an existing investor in Morpheus who's on the board uh, at $2.7 billion valuation. So a huge valuation. This is a $500 million. Headline valuation. Headline valuation. We don't know what the terms are. The, we don't know what the well, terms we can speculate on that in a minute. Yeah. Uh, $500 million uplift in, a, in what has been a really difficult <laughs> funding environment. Yeah. The annual revenue, this is not profit. We're talking about EBITDA versus profit yep. this is neither this is this is revenue yeah uh well it's not bit. even revenue it's arr isn't it it's what revenue will be yeah. in 12 months if we yeah it's gonna be it. AAR, exactly and so that was 132 million dollar AAR. so that yeah. 20 times revenue multiple yep. on what isn't a technology play in a sense it's more of a sort of really basic technology play it's a checklist mm. they talk about well, you say it's not do. deep tech it's definitely tech, not but deep it's not tech. deep tech it's yeah even calling a tax probably gilding lily a little bit. Well, I call, I call e-commerce tech because it's good for my valuation. So if I'm prepared to do that, I'll call anything tech. I'd say it's a lot less tech than Catapult, for Yeah, example, that's true. Right? Catapult's yeah. approaching... De- I would call Catapult almost deep tech. Yeah. Definitely originally it was. Yeah, I would call Catapult deep tech. And so basically, it's a, it's a health and, uh, occupational health and safety check- checklist app, which is super, super useful. Yeah. Uh, interesting, some of the comments Luke made, were, I thought interesting and worth talking about. So he basically said, we've shifted the business back from a growth mode to being profitable. It means we have infinite runway. This is what he said, mm. I think, six months ago. Mm-hmm. Then on Monday, Luke said, uh, safety culture was prioritising growth and turning away from profit. Uh, and he said, I don't think we were ever fully off venture capital money. Trying to wean what's nearly a $3 billion baby off milk takes time. But I think you constantly want to assess what's best the way, for the way you build the business. 
which is to me a little bit worrying. So on one hand, he's saying, I'm going to go to profitability. He can't make profit. He goes, oh, no, no, forget about profit. Let's, let's focus on growth. So it's kind of whatever the market wants, we'll give them. And it's really handy because we couldn't execute the profit. We can execute the growth because it's easy to execute grow without making any money. I'm not going to do that. Well, not anybody. Most people can do that. And now he's got this 20 times valuation from an existing mm. investor who's been on the who's been on the board for many years and, and uh, obviously knows the business really well. What are your thoughts? I mean, maybe we don't know that he couldn't make money. Maybe he could have made money, but maybe it's not a great looking business if you make money now. That could be it as well. So I'm more sympathetic to one bit of this, which is like markets are so fickle and VCs, you know, we all know that um, they were pushing people to take money on almost whatever terms they wanted and then the whole market turned on a dime including public markets and so you know when you're the CEO of a venture-backed business founder CEO you are going to be you're a little leaf on a river and wherever that current goes you got to go with it because you cannot push against the current and so I've got sympathy for that my my views are actually pretty simple about this firstly you have to admit being in compliance at this moment in history, that is a pretty nice tailwind to have, right? And so I feel like this is feels like a business that got into compliance at the right time, executed well, does a good job of it, and so that is a great place to be, right? The tailwind carries them. You know, what do I feel about the valuation? He seemed pretty excited to say that it was almost $3 billion. So <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, be, always be aware of the founder that says they don't care about valuation as talking about why their valuation is too low. Um, <laughs> but what I think is, the, I would call this valuation unlikely to be real. And so what I mean by that is what you've said. Like, so little, small amounts of money are not a real valuation yeah. for a start. Secondly, if you're getting a preference share, and which will say means you get paid first mm. if things go badly, then you can't do any valuation, but like it gives you a lot more flexibility to say, yeah, 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 on the valuation. And if you're getting a multiple of liquidation, yeah. so I put in 20 and I'm guaranteed minimum 40. Let's just talk about this because the multiple, two, Because valuations three, three, are not valuations, right? I mean, I think that's a worth something to talk, talking about how yeah, valuations are not real things. They're not like, this is a chair, I'm sitting on a chair. How do I know it's not a dog? Because I know what a chair is and just because they've got both four legs, they're not the same thing. But valuations are everything and nothing at the same time. So let's talk about, because it is a super confusing part of valuations and we'll talk about liquidation. That pricing. analogy turned out much better than it started when well, I started speaking. Well, I didn't even think that dogs had four legs when I started <laughs> the analogy. But there you go, it turned out quite well. So when you go to liquidation prep, so a preference share is a combination of a normal share and a bit like a debt instrument. So if I'm buying a preference share in Catapult, for example, which probably wouldn't happen now because you're very mature, mm -hmm. but let's go back 10 years and I'm getting a preference share in Catapult and I can get a one times liquidation preference or even a two or a three or I've never heard of more than three, but let's say I, let's say I get a one times liquidation mm -hmm. preference. How does that work? Mm -hmm. So I invest a one times pref at a $100 million valuation. If I put $20 million in, in two years time, and the business is worth $110 million, what, what happens? Explain to listeners. Yeah, I mean, we've all been down this road. We've looked prefs, and if you are taking VC money, their mandates mostly require prefs. And so I would say the way I think about this is if the preference, because, you know, we can do one more complicated thing and say sometimes the preference means you just get your money back or your shares value, and sometimes it means you get your money back and your shares value, and so that's you know participating and non-participating. Yep. And so this non-participating, which means I put my 20 mil in, and if you sell the business and I've got 10%, and I'm going to end up with less for my 10% than the 20 mil, I get to take my 20 mil back first. Yep. I'm kind of all right with that. 
So I think that is kind of it's protecting like the downside. Yeah. It's it's not debt in the sense that you are giving some things up, like you sit below debt in the grand scheme of risk. You're not getting interest generally on that. Sometimes you do, yeah, but it, yeah. you can. And so I'm all right with that. It's not perfectly aligned with founders, which I prefer, but yeah. it's close. You know, these participating intr- instruments, they're kind of more interesting, let's call them. So that yeah. means I put in 20 and I get my back my 20 and then I get my 10% as well. So that's getting more aggressive. I don't yeah. love that. And then you get very aggressive, right? You get two times participating liquidation preference. I put in t- 20, I guarantee 40. Maybe there's 5% interest as well that I'm accruing every year. Plus I get my equity at the end. So I've seen those kind of things. I mean, I was talking to someone about that yesterday, two times participating preference. I mean, there was nothing left for the founders at the mm. end of that sale. So let's give a real life example. Let's say you're putting in $20 million at a $100 million valuation mm. with a two times participating mm. breath and the business then sells for $150 million yeah. two years later, which is a pretty good result. So it's gone up 50%. Founders created this 150 mm-hmm. million. How much is the founder ending up with in that situation? Yeah, that's a good point. So let's say it was 80 mil and I put in 20 mil and it took it to 100 mil value, yep. right? And so I've got 20% of it and I've got a 20 mil pref. Yeah. And now it's 150 mil. So my 20% that's worth 30 mil. Yeah. But the problem is it's not really because first I take back my 20. Yeah. And then the 150 that's left turns into 130. Yeah. And then I get my 20% of that. That's another 26. Yeah. And so now 46 of the 150, or let's call it roughly a third, mm. went to me, even though my equity was 20%. Yeah. That's a pretty good deal for the investor. And you know where that money's coming from. It's coming from other investors, but mostly yeah. it's coming from founders who have common stock yeah. and sit at the bottom. And so their 10 years of work that they put in, they can literally, if they're, because un- you, you had an example there with a valuation that went up. Yeah. But you know, valuations yeah. go down as well. And so like the story that I had yesterday when I spoke to this founder, some things went, their business was going up, some things went wrong. They had to sell for much less than they had expected. They literally walked away with next to nothing after five or six years of work in a business that at one stage had been worth 15 times what they ended up selling for. I think the worst situation is where... And it the, wasn't a bad business. Yeah, the, let's say the founders created $100 million. I'm using your example mm. from a minute ago. The, so the valuation is $100 million bucks, and then they walk away and the, you've got given some... some earlier rounds you've given up so the founder come, has 50 percent equity when this preference share investor comes in the founder and walk away with five million bucks the, pre- the preference share investors work around with away with 30 yeah and the other investors get the 65 or whatever it is yep. so the founder's got almost nothing yep. and they've created a 100 million dollar business uh, so that's their so my advice to or when the 300 million dollars comes in at a big round yeah and you say that's amazing it's a 300 mil value and a two billion dollar valuation but it's like a two times liquidation preference yeah and the business sells for 500 million dollars because something went wrong mm. all of the money goes to that person yeah. they don't even get their full 600 like yeah. nobody else gets a cent like Very we know nice. those stories as well right like yeah. you know it's a there is a law of gravity as well with startups they don't all just keep going up forever yeah and i think there's, and that goes to the point on and you mentioned on three billion valuation it, my advice to founders and, and and startup people is sacrifice valuation and a little bit of evolution for terms and oh, don't take sure I, I think you can probably accept a one times pref if, if you need to if, if, if you one really times, times non-participating yeah, like non-participating. you got to yep. pick which one you want yep. the money or the box yeah so one times non-participating i think any more than one times i, I don't i think it's just too risky because you're relying on the business to go up yep. significantly in value. If, you, yep. if you're doubling, then it's fine because you, yep. you go, you ride with it. But my my recommendation to investors is try to, first try not to raise, try and bootstrap as long as you can. Yeah. 
And that's, that's often not feasible. So you've got to get money in many cases. If you're, if you're creating a marketplace, creating deep tech, you just can't bootstrap that. And a high growth, like high growth B2B SaaS. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Like, so 90% of businesses can't bootstrap, yeah. 10% can. If you're in the 90%, do everything you can to avoid giving those those terms out. Because yeah, it might sound good to have a $20 million valuation in early round, but if you're giving away great prefs and then get screwed a year later and create a $20 million business, but get, end up with nothing. So any founder that comes to me and says, oh, I've got this great valuation, but oh, these terms aren't that great. I say, ignore the vowel, yeah. take half the vowel. It might not sound as good for the press release, but it's going to be much better off. And we don't even talk about the terms about voting and stuff. But So that's what I think about, to bring it back to um, safety culture. You know, if there's a if there's an investor that comes in, uh, what was the raise about 35 mil or 34, something? 34, yeah, so yeah. tiny, 1% of that. So let's say an investor comes in and says, I'll give you 34, but I want a two times non-participating. So I choose two times or my equity. Yeah. I don't care if the valuation is 2.7 or 1.7. I'm guaranteed, like there's no chance that this business is going to sell for less than 70 mil. Yeah. So I'm guaranteed my 70 mil back. Yeah. So I, this investment is the closest thing possible to the day I write the check is the day I double my money. Yeah. That kind of investment. And so I'm not saying those were the terms. Yeah. What I'm more saying is, you know, what, what, what we're agreeing with, like the valuation is an irrelevant number if you don't know the terms. What I thought yeah. was interesting is that didn't, the rest of the release say he's going to go and do five million dollars, five hundred million dollars of secondary yeah. sell down. Yeah, at the same, well, that's real money. Yeah, like I always say, no valuation is real unless somebody is putting money into their pocket. Yeah, and that is real money. That's people. So it will be interesting if he can pull off a five hundred million dollars secondary at three billion dollars. Yeah, then I will never say another word <laughs> about this valuation again, and I will bow I'll down. I think we're both all certainly in our words, in our words, that happens. But I suspect the secondary isn't going to happen, or be a lot less than five hundred million. I think the biggest secondary they've done previously was six mil or something like that. Yeah. So it's a small single-digit million number. Yeah. Big news story. And our big story of the week is your article from the Financial Review, which is certainly worth a read if you can get hold of or online, jump online and, and look at ideas uh, behind the deal article on Breakthrough Victoria. So this is an incredible story that, that I think you really broke that I certainly had heard of, hadn't heard of, and it's Australia's biggest growth fund, uh, which is run by a government, the Victorian government. We obviously, we're both Victorians, so we're, we're funded this Breakthrough mm-hmm. Fund. So it's, Victoria's been, in my view, secretly running this Breakthrough Fund for, for two years, chaired by former Premier John Brumby. The two billion dollar fund, which I think you worked out, means every Victorian household's invested seven hundred fifty dollars in this exactly. fund involuntarily, of course, because we didn't know about it. Uh, they have five investment programs: pre-seed, VC, growth capital platform, and fund investment, uh, and they give grants, repayable loans, equity, and joint ventures. Uh, and ultimately, responsibility, as you mentioned, lies with Dan Andrews, mm-hmm. the Victorian Premier. So, tell me, how did you find out about this for a start? Mm. So, I found out about it before the last election when I was looking at where all of the various funding commitments had gone and there was this announcement of this particular it caught my eye because two billion dollars and i started looking into it and the more i looked into it the more intrigued i became at what in the heck breakthrough victoria actually is and so what what was the uh process you went through so you somehow came across this is pretty incredible observation which is one of your great skills is, is noticing stuff so you saw there's this massive mm. fund, and then how do you sort of un- untangle? Because I can't imagine there's a lot of pre- there's not very little press about it. They don't talk about it much. Like it's a oh, it's shocked shocked that in uh, in this state there's no not much publicly information available <laughs> about something some spending, right? Yeah. So yeah, I mean there was not a lot of info. So this is one of the crazy things. So 
There are some press releases about some investments. Generally, they don't talk about the quantum of the investment, let alone the valuation. A lot of them are fund of funds investments, so putting yep. money in other funds. Which itself um, is very strange. Like I mind that less, to be honest with you. Like anything that diminishes the need for the people running it to be smart enough to pick yeah. winners is a good thing okay. in my view. Fair enough. So um, like giving the money back to taxpayers, like I think that's the ultimate great yeah. decision. And then beyond there, give it to people whose day job is investing money. Yeah. So there were some press releases. There was a bit of media. There's an annual report. But the annual report is so thin on detail. And so that really intrigued me more. And the answer is that I had to piece it together from not very much information and... It's amazing how many of the footnotes I reread and reread in that annual report because that's yeah. where the most information mm. was hidden, basically. So, uh, in a way, you compare this to a sovereign fund. So, sovereign wealth mm. funds are hardly unusual. Norway, well, that is a sovereign fund. Yeah. Well, except Victoria's not really a sovereign. Victoria's a state as mm. part of well, Australia. Well, we did Belt and Road by ourselves. Isn't that <laughs> sovereign? So, so, so Australia's got the precinct of the future fund, which has been actually very successful. Yeah. Very successful one. Peter Costello has run it for many. He's founded it now. Now sort of and the medical it. research future fund, which is twenty billion dollars. Yep. Yeah, I think there's. I think the court those sovereign funds make sense. You've got non-infinite commodity wealth mm. that that and Norway is the classic example. They had the mm-hmm. so North Sea uh, oil wealth that they turned into a very successful fund, and, and obviously Saudi, Dubai have mm-hmm. done some things. Singapore with Tomasek has been incredibly successful. So the nature of, of states running fund. Court pure investment type funds. Mm-hmm. There's an argument that it makes sense. Uh, I'm not. I don't have a great view either way. I think where this is much more concerning for, for me. Anyway, I'm not sure this is what, what your views were, but the nature of governments picking favourites. And if you look at a state, so if you look at a future mm-hmm. fund, they're investing in internationally a lot. Yep. So it's not really they're just investing for what is trying to get the best possible return. Mm-hmm. It feels like the Victorian investment. They've kept it a secret. That future funds very public. They always announce their returns. The whole process is very, very. They're public. not saying they're trying to help companies grow. Yeah, they're trying to say I'm invest. just trying to make money. Yeah, so they're trying, which is I think is fine and make money for for taxpayers mm. and to fund. Hundred percent. This well, is to very fund different. public service liabilities to, basically. Yeah, to, to, which is no different to any super. Uh, yeah, to find benefit super fund. This is very different. This is. Victorian government picking winners, mm-hmm. picking and and this this is a two billion dollars slush fund that Dan could give to his mate Lindsay Fox if he want. Like I'm mm-hmm. not saying he has, but he could. Mm-hmm. He could give it to his mate Luke Sayers if he want. I'm not saying I'm not saying he has, mm-hmm. and I don't think he has, but he could. This is almost a Putin style fund. It's literally going back to the communist days where state and commerce is intermingled, and the the premier, as this case, can choose to invest taxpayer money in wherever he wants. This is outrageous in many respects. How, how would I think it feels? And I think there's more transparency than just giving it to one of his mates. Yeah. The origin of this is very murky, like why this chose to happen. I will say that John Brumby gave an interview to the... So, I, you know, the problem with these articles, as you would know, is it started off twice the size and then, you know, like a lot of stuff didn't yeah. end up in there. So the way this started... I wouldn't say the way it started. I'll make an observation. John Brumby was... In, so I think John Brumby's good, by the way. So yep. he was interviewed by the Herald Sun. And as part of an interview, he seemed he made what I read as a fairly off-the-cuff comment that said, there's not enough investment in Victoria. We should have a billion-dollar fund that the government puts together. Three months later, there's a $2 billion <laughs> fund and he's chairing it. <laughs> and so it may have been that he was kind of um, signalling what was to come... It may have been that that stimulated an idea. There's never been any explanation of where this came from. And the thing is this, people compare it to other states. It's 10 times bigger than any other state's investment fund for this type of thing, minimum 10 times. So it's a whole different scale. 
And then there are some other things, again, that I thought I couldn't put in, but I thought was strange. Like when um, Brumby was initially interviewed about this, he really very clearly said, this is designed for early stage. I don't really want to do use this for growth. It's a completely different strategy now. Yeah. There's like these five pillars. The pillars include early stage. They include growth. They include fund of funds. They include a platform. I couldn't work out what that was. <laughs> and so some of the investments have been great. Like I think investing in CIRA, which is the eye research yeah. stuff at the Victorian Eye and Air, you know, that, I know that organisation. That is a great high-quality organisation, and I'm not sure they would have gotten private capital for that. So mm. that's great. Investing in private businesses when you're picking winners, the New South Wales government almost blew itself up by doing the same thing. Yeah. They invested in an oyster farm <laughs> and a wagyu farm, yeah. and all the oyster farm people that were competing with that oyster farm started complaining about having to compete with their own government. Yeah. It's a pretty good argument, if you ask me. And so, you know, Perite got the hell out of that. And I think you sold it to one of the big super funds, basically, yeah. their involvement. Their KPIs, you, you tell me if you got these KPIs at Luxury Escape, okay? <laughs> three KPIs. They scored 100% on all three. Of course, yeah. One, setting up Breakthrough Victoria. That's one KPI. So they nailed that. <laughs> Two, a strategic long-term plan. What score did they give themselves on that? A hundred percent. Three, making five investments. So what they revealed in the annual report is they there were some many hundreds of applications they got. I think it was seven or eight hundred, with a sum total of a billion dollars. Their target was five. Well, how many do you think they made? Five. Yep. That is the sort of stuff that looks anomalous. Their cash flow and their balance sheet and their P and L do not reveal a quantum of their investments in things. This, the money that comes in comes in in lump sums from it's a government grant effectively. Yeah. And so on a P&L basis, they're profitable because mm. the government grant is top-line revenue. Yeah. So you can't use the P&L. Yeah. So then you look at the balance sheet. All right, well, what's that, what do they value their investments at? But it's not on the balance sheet. The investment, return, the investment value on the balance sheet is blank. Yeah. And so I, I don't know what they're doing, an off-balance sheet <laughs> trust or whatever they're doing. But yeah. like... It's very difficult to assess what in the hell is happening to this money. And so yeah. that was kind of the more anomalous thing that I found about yeah. this. Do we want tax and man, this money comes from payroll taxes, it comes from taxes that you and I but comes from parking like all sorts of not parking fine, it comes from all sorts of stuff mm-hmm. that we pay. So mm-hmm. it's money from Victorians that gets taken by the government at four, you don't pay it, you go to jail. So it gets taken mm-hmm. by the threat of force. And they're using it to invest in who they want to invest in without any any rep- real reporting. As you say, you know, we don't know what the terms of the investments are. We don't know who they invested in. They could lose it all. They could make money. Ultimately, I don't want Dan Andrews to invest my money on my behalf. Well, I, I want to invest I my def- own money on my I behalf. I definitely don't want... So the thing about this Medical Research Future Fund, the MRFF, the 20 bill one, that was established by specific legislation in 2015. Like it was the MRFF Act, basically. And it enshrines independence... Breakthrough Victoria is not a not statute. Mm. It's just a company under the Corporations Act that's a state-owned company yeah. that's in the budget papers. It has a shareholder in the Treasurer of Victoria on behalf of the government and the portfolio reports directly to the Premier. Yeah. I mean, that, that to me is like, I don't like um, picking winners. Mm. I don't like $2 billion of taxpayer money doing a job that I think the private sector should be doing. But what I especially don't like is the intermingling with the political overlords deciding. The crazy thing is, the thing you would be worried about and I'm worried about is 100 mil to your mate. Yeah. But that's not what's happening here. Mm. That It's the other end of the spectrum. It's 
$150,000 investments. Yeah. I mean, how the hell can you make a $150,000 yeah. investment out of a $20 billion, a $2 billion fund? Yeah. I think there's much more to play out in this story. I've had yeah. a lot of approaches subsequently. I think there's going to be a lot more written about it. I think it's going to be... Uh, it's going to end up being a really interesting story. I'm surprised nobody else has... Has anyone else picked up on after your story? Have you seen... I've had lots of conversations after inbound interest from media yeah. and others. You know, one of the things I was told, I don't know if this is true, that um, so there were 35 employees in the annual report. I've yeah. been told it's up to 60 now. It's a credible source. I don't yeah. know if it's true. Yeah. I think the problem that a lot of the media had... So there were two outlets that approached me and said they wanted to write stories on this already for a while. Yeah. But they said, we couldn't get any info. How did you get your info? Mm. I said, I just Googled. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, um, I think it's been quite shocking to people. Yeah. The existence of this fund and the way it operates. I mean, the only disappointing part is, I think AFR should have made this a front page story. I, I, I'm not sure why this, like it, they put you in the tech section, which is great. But this is, this should have been a front page story in every newspaper. This is mm. potentially scandalous. Eventually one of these investments going to blow so up. So I think that's it though. I think the thing is, it's not scandalous. It could be scandalous. There might be a scandal in it. But as it currently stands, I would say, uh, I would call it curious in the most um, malevolent interpretation of that word I can use, right? It's like it's curious. But it's not scandalous yet. Uh, maybe it's not completely scandalous yet, but it almost inevitably will be because I don't think any time governments could have be. done stuff like this when it's... When it's well, this isn't a future fund, which is super... Uh, in the public eye, public spectrum, there's there's no question what's it was from the day one that no, this is what I we're going to do. This is the purpose of it. This is complete opposite. No politician ever uses opacity when they're proud of what's happening. Yeah, exactly. And I, I actually don't know why they've done it. It, it makes no sense. Um, but great story idea and well done on that. Uh, our last topic to talk about less tech, but obviously to, sector close to my heart, uh, being the aviation sector. So a couple of weeks ago, the transport minister Catherine King shocked the tourism sector by rejecting Qatar's bid for 28 new weekly flights, which was surprising in, in a number of ways. Firstly, with Qatar, were, Qatar and SQ, Singapore were the only airlines that flew to Australia during mm -hmm. COVID. They really, if you want to get back to Australia, it wasn't mm. Qantas taking you back, mm. it was Qatar or Singapore. Right. So they did the right thing by Australia. They've lost money during those routes. They, they were a great friend of Australia. There was a very controversial incident at Doha Airport with women being terribly searched invasively, which, which was a horrendous incident. But let's be honest, other countries kill Australians. I'm not sure we can uh -huh. determine bilateral uh -huh. aviation uh, agreements based on on how countries treat out. Well, we don't. We don't. And it, clearly, we won't name names, but there are plenty of countries that, that uh -huh. are too far worse than that. Uh, ironically, the first reason King gave for rejecting the Qatar bid was those human rights issues, which uh -huh. was how down by everyone, and she looked like a complete fool. So she quickly backtracked. Then she went and said, oh, no, it's actually to de decarbonise the transport sector. Yeah. Which again made no sense because cars got seven, eight, the, the best. More efficient More planes. efficient planes. So that didn't make sense. Then she went and came, claimed that, oh, no, third, reason three in three days, I think she gave, was to, well, she refused to protect Qatar from long, because she wanted to protect long-term, well-paid, secure jobs for Australians in the aviation mm. sector. Only small problem with that is the only company that really benefited from this was, was Qantas, mm. who was sacked, whether illegally or illegally, we don't know yet, because uh, I think the federal court's still deciding sacked 2,000 people during the pandemic, mm -hmm. or even more pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. So that didn't make sense. That had a bit of a baggage handler issue. The baggage handler stage. issue. The and the final one, which was the worst, which was embarrassing, she went on Cairns Radio. God knows why you go on Cairns Radio. But she went on Cairns Radio. Maybe because you think no one's listening. Yeah, unfortunately people listen. Because yeah. this is reported everywhere. And she's gone, but actually the reason why we rejected Qatar was Qantas had just purchased brand new planes at a significant cost 
they haven't really yet, but they're purchasing. Mm. Uh, they're bigger planes, they're quieter planes, they're better for the environment. We're going to start to see a lot of that. This is possibly the dumbest thing a politician said in, in years, and there's mm. some pretty dumb politicians out there. So it's not up to the Australian taxpayer to fund Qantas's planes mm. and by rejecting Qatar's bid, we're making every Australian pay more for flights, of which so, goes to yep. Qantas. Uh, so this seems to me to be the greatest... And King almost certainly didn't make the decision. It was Albanese who has got a great relationship. He's good mates with Alan Joyce, was transport minister. It feels like it was Albo's decision. Mm. What are your thoughts on the whole Qatar Qantas debacle and how has Qantas been able to manage its brand, good and bad, yeah. in the last two years? Well, I mean, you know... On the plus side, the new planes that she's talking about ticks box number t- excuse yeah. number two of yeah. you know environmental. Yeah, I, I mean number one, she needs to get somebody new in her media team. <laughs> like this is like it's looked pretty bad, right? Yeah. You're you're right. You've characterised it as a new excuse every day. I think that's exactly what it's looked like. Uh, I think it's very problematic, right? I mean, you know, the, the so Joe Aston has uh, doesn't seem to like Ellen Joyce <laughs> very much in the Fin Review, and obviously he's gone after him pretty hard, and so. If we strip out all of any of the personal stuff, yeah. if you look at this whole chairman's lounge thing, yeah. I have to tell you that Joe Aston's articles made me look at those in a bit of a different light. The idea that um, politicians are getting gifted this very, very exclusive money can't buy membership mm. from Qantas yeah. just on the basis that they're politicians, presumably, you know, the, the one thing you can say about politicians is they're in a decision-making position yeah. about big things like who can fly to Australia. Yeah. And so, you know, then when it turned out that Elbow's son, you know, got, 23-year-old got, got, university the, got, got the membership to the, the chairman's lounge as well, and I think Elbow's response was, I didn't declare it because, you know, it's not me, it's not independent, <laughs> and it's like, I don't think he would have gotten it if it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> I think... The truth is that um, Alan Joyce is leaving Qantas at a very good time. Mm. Like the level of um, hate that a lot of customers have for them has not affected the performance of the business because yeah. there's such a, a shortage at the moment. Yeah, There's these huge profits. You're right. Like they haven't had to spend tons of cash on planes for a while. And so, you know, I think that um, Qantas might find themselves in a bit of an uncomfortable political position. Yeah. My, my view is this, like Virgin doesn't really compete internationally anymore in any significant way at the yeah. moment. Um, like Jane Hardlicker, I don't think you want to fight her. Like <laughs> like head to head with Ellen Joyce, I think I might back Jane, you know? Yeah. And so... Jane used to work for Ellen, obviously. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like if you run Jetstar, I think, you know, you're going to have some bruises on your knuckles, right? Like you have to be yeah. tough to run that business. Absolutely. And so Virgin has been very quiet so far about all of this. My, my guess is at some point... Virgin will make some more noise about this because they're benefiting from some of this as well. Like the, abil- the ability to have slots at airports but and be able to cancel flights and yep. retain the slots. It's domestically, obviously. Domestically. Yep. But it'll be interesting to see if like there's a bit of political fallout on Qantas, how Virgin reacts to that and whether they'll be opportunistic about it. I, I think there should be fallout. Like it's a bad look. Just to declare, we obviously luckily have to have a partnership with Virgin. We used to have a partnership with Qantas, yeah. so but that doesn't influence my. my oh, you'll equally matter. make money on whoever wants to give you money, presumably. Well, we pay them, so yeah. it's. Uh, uh, yeah. um, but I think interesting. This is the one instance where so Qantas just last week got their Emirates deal fully ticked off at HBC. Yeah. So Qantas basically outsources most of their international business to Emirates. They, they keep their best routes, but everything else is well. They operate like a single business, effectively. But effectively, and they're allowed so a special exemption from the HBC. Yeah. Qatar and Virgin do a sort of similar thing. Um, and this obviously really hurts Virgin. So I'm not sure how much of this has been pushed by Virgin behind the scenes. It also is outrageous. We tried to speak to Catherine King. We speak to 
politicians from time to time. We've tried to get Catherine King to explain how important was the Qatar get these flights. This is in the last year. We tried for a year to speak to her. She didn't want, and that's her right. We're not. We're not. Qantas, well, it's clearly. not really her right. I, d- I disagree with you on that. So basically, and like I don't care if it, you know, like I can find equal disdain for Liberal and Labor politicians. <laughs> like basically. You know, I know that this is not a very popular concept anymore, but they are public servants. Mm. Like, they work for us. The reason they get paid is because we pay a portion of our income so that they can get paid. They don't generate any of the money that they get paid. <laughs> and so they work for us. And so when you run a, you run a big business in the scheme of um, tourism in Australia, and there's a big business... When you ask for a conversation with the Minister of Tourism... Transport. Tur- tourism tur- is great. So the Minister of Transport. So yeah. Like, y- you should be getting that meeting. Like, she works for you. Well, I think so- she works for Alan Joyce, technically. So, it, uh, she certainly doesn't work for Luxury Escapes because we don't have Chairman's Lounge, unfortunately. But, well, uh, you know, I think the sad thing about the whole Chairman's Lounge thing is the opposition can't attack them on it. Yeah. Because they've all got the Chairman's Lounge. That's the be- it, it is the greatest... And people criticise Alan Joyce, rightly or wrongly... Alan Joyce is Australia's most effective and brilliant lobbyist. That's his job, and he's done it incredible. You can argue that he should have messed more in fleet, blah, 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 mm. and that's probably right. But as a lobbyist, in, in, he's paid by shareholders to get mm. money out of the government. He does it better than anyone has ever done in history. He got $2.7 billion during COVID. Every other travel operator got nothing. He yep. got $2.7 yep. billion. It was absolutely brilliant. He, he's played the government like for It gives them Chairman's Club, which is really not very valuable in terms mm-hmm. of what you get from it having mm-hmm. been a member once it's, mm-hmm. it's not overly valuable it's nice to say you're in it but it's actually but if you come if you're a politician and you come from not high means and let's say you're not a high flyer generally in life and suddenly you're in the chairman's lounge like that feels like a big deal i think that that they he makes them feel very special and important the bigger thing than chairman's lounge is what they do when you're in the chairman's lounge so there's chairman's lounge and chairman's lounge there's yeah. chairman's lounge adam schwab who gets nothing yeah he just gets a slightly better yeah. better lounge there's chairman's lounge and your and uh, um elbow and you're getting upgrades every time yeah. i never got an upgrade but no no like that was fine yeah uh well that but, wasn't really fun you would have liked an upgrade of course i would have but so be yeah. it. I don't expect one. Yeah. Uh, but it, politicians are getting them. They're asking for them. They're getting them. So there's, yeah. that's what is much more nefarious. And Alan Joyce played the game unbelievably well. And, and Jane's no fool either. This, like, right? They're both very good at it. Yeah. Uh, and I think he's done a – overall, if I'm rating Alan Joyce's report card, I'm rating him very highly. I'm rating Catherine King very low. But I'm rating Alan Joyce. He's played these I all totally these guys like fools. But don't you think this whole idea of bribery – it's a pretty weird concept, right? Like if I go up to a politician and I say – I'm going to pay for your lounge access and I'm going to pay for you to travel business and first class when you travel. What do you want in return? No, no, nothing specific, (laughs) nothing specific, but I'm going to pay for you. I mean, that would be, even if I hadn't asked for anything in return, that would be considered bribery. Like, uh, it would be a dumb politician that took me up on that offer. I've never understood how this is allowed. So I don't, so, and so I'm not saying that this is bribery. Like, Mm. I don't know. I don't know the law of whether this is bribery or not. But it doesn't seem very different to what I just described. It certainly, in my view, it's always been soft bribery. It's legal. I'm not not saying anybody's done anything illegally, but it's... And this is not this, and Qantas is the only one. I have, the amount of times I've, I, I, you go to the tennis, and I see, I saw a very senior minister yeah. in the same tennis. Like you can argue, maybe I shouldn't make any, but at least I'm aware a company that has a, a relationship with. The I would never it, argue but, that I or anybody I know should not be getting perks from companies like going to the tennis. I'm fully, <laughs> fully, and wholeheartedly supportive of that. <laughs> but yeah, and the amount of times I've seen politicians in these, and you go to you go to the races, and yeah. in, in the Emirates marquee, and there are politicians everywhere, and I've I've been the urinal next to politicians, yeah. and and. And it, to me, I don't see how this is different to giving someone a wad of cash because 
it would have cost a thousand bucks to get in there. Instead of giving the thousand bucks, I've given yep. entry to something that cost a thousand bucks. I don't know how it's, I don't know how politicians are able to get anything. Obviously, they make the rules, so they, they yep. make the rules they're allowed to. But this is it's endemic in Australia, and we've seen and Qatar's the probably the, where the rubber hits the road, and is Qatar mm-hmm. hasn't come here, so Australia's paying more for airfares. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably where we'll leave it for, for Qantas. That was the first episode of The Contrarians with Adam and Adia. Is this even an episode? I feel like I'm basically coming. We're having this conversation. There's microphones. <laughs> we should have just brought lunch and we could have just combined it all at once. But uh, no, it was a great first episode and can't wait to, to record the second one. I hope Absolutely. you enjoyed listening. Bye.